Welcome back to Raising Rare. We are in our fifth season talking about the joys, challenges, and surprises of raising children with a rare disease. Our co-hosts, Sonith Ramesh and Brittany Ratke, will keep you updated on their kiddos. And we hope our lineup of guests will give you new insights and hope. My name is Kevin Fryert. Today on Raising Rare, we are talking to Mark Dant as part of our Other End of the Tunnel series, where we talk to parents whose kids have grown up with a rare diagnosis. Mark is the executive director of the Ryan Foundation, named after his son Ryan, who is diagnosed with mucopolysaccharidosis type 1, or Hurler syndrome. But first, Brittany, how's Evie doing? She is doing well this week. We uh, Most people probably don't celebrate this, but we made it through a series of the flu last week without a hospitalization. So that was a huge win in our book. We were able to navigate that at home, and she is doing well. And we're also celebrating unusually warm weather in Minnesota this, this week. So something to look forward to, of course. Sonneth, how's Ragap doing? He's just getting started with a with a cold episode, so um, we are also hopeful he will not get hospitalized. We'll see, um, but good good job on uh, keeping Evie at home and getting through the sickness. It's it's always nerve wracking when these things happen. You you never know what course they're going to take. Yes, thank you. We started something new this time with the flu called Tolerex. I'm not sure if. You've heard of that before, but it saved our life. So we'll have to talk about that on a, a different episode. <laughs> Wait, is that a medication? It's a type. It's basically a formula, but not a formula that you can use when there's vomiting um, with some nutritional stuff added to it. Um, but it's new for us from the Cleveland Clinic, and it was a great resource this time around. We'll send you one. We'll send you one to have. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. How's how's um uh, every seizures? Pretty good. When we recently upped that dose of Keppra, um, we've had a really good, basically turnaround from that last episode where we had just back to back seizures. And the biggest thing we were worried about, obviously, was the uh, Kepra rage again coming around and fortunately we have not had any of that so I'm feeling hopeful about that as well. So glad to hear that. We switched from Kepra to this new drug called Breviact. It's okay. supposed to be an equivalent of Kepra but without the side effects. Nice. Um, so and you're liking it so you far? You guys can talk about it. Uh, it's too soon to say but I think yes. Okay. We'll see. Um, we haven't we haven't seen as much. He's been sick on and off, so it's hard to say if he's actually going to get into those tantrum tantrum zones. Yep. Um, but for what it's worth, it's supposed to be just a just a flip from Capra to this other drug uh, okay. because their mechanism of actions are, are almost identical. So, Mark, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your son and his diagnosis? Sure. And first, thanks so much for the opportunity to share our story with so many important listeners. And, and I say important because I, I uh, know from my heart for the past 30 years that those on the rare journey are quite important. They're important to all of us because we can lean on each other then. 
So my son Ryan was was born in 1988, uh, happy, healthy, uh, no issues whatsoever health-wise. He's our only uh, only child, firstborn. Uh, at three and a half, uh, uh, Ryan was diagnosed with MPS1, as Kevin said, mucopolysaccharidosis type 1. At that time in 88, there were no treatments. Um, there was no hope. There were no very few scientists and no companies involved not just in NPS, but really in, in rare, there were no companies. So uh, we were told that Ryan would pass away within the decade. He would he would uh, suffer, He was his limbs would draw up, he would no longer be able to use his hands or his legs, He'd probably be blind uh, or deaf, uh, have cognitive decline, and pass away without question within the decade. So um, that was our journey. Uh, from the age of three and a half, everything changes. All of us know on the, uh, the day of diagnosis, the life that you had, the life you were dreaming of, uh, is no longer possible. So what do you do then? And that was the question my wife and I asked every night, laying on the floor next to his bed, listening to him sleep for more than a year. That's what we did. We laid, we questioned, and we, we buried the home uh, that might have been, as, as I often say, the home of more children and uh, graduations and sports and marriages and grandchildren, all of that had left us in that one moment. So that sets the stage of, of what to do when there is nothing you can do. Can you tell us a little bit how Ryan is doing today? And I, and I have to add, I was born in 87, so just interesting to hear kind of the journey thus far and, and track along with that. And I really would like to hear how things are going today. So as we jump to the end of the story, it, it's uh, it's becomes a story that no one really believes uh, because such amazing things had happened because the, the partnership between science and patient and industry and uh, ultimately the FDA to bring a treatment for not only Ryan, for, for children now in 75 countries around the world. Uh, Dr. Emil Kakis at UCLA developed a, a, an enzyme replacement therapy that puts back in his system what he can't make himself. So uh, eight weeks before his 10th birthday, Ryan started an IV ERT enzyme replacement therapy. He's had uh, one a week, four hour IV infusion since then, um, 25 years now, every week. And Ryan is now 35 years old. Uh, he's married as of two years ago. They just bought a home last, last winter. Um, He's having an incredible life. Now, he still has a weekly IV infusion. He also has other medical issues. He has to do a quarterly lumbar tap to try to treat the brain off-label. Uh, and he's had 14 surgeries. It's not been an easy journey, but the great news is he is still having his journey. And that was uh, what we had hoped for back laying on the floor next to his bed that first year after diagnosis. Wow, that's incredible. Um, this is this is part of the reason why we wanted to have um, folks like you, Mark, on this series because, um, as we had talked to so many different parents and caregivers in this journey, we've always focused on the start of the tunnel and not the end of the tunnel. I know the tunnel doesn't end, right? But knowing that there is hope at the end of the tunnel, knowing that there is a good life that is possible, and seeing people like Ryan shine and rise above the expectations is just so empowering and uplifting for all of us. So I'm really thankful for everything that you and your family and the foundation have done for setting the stage for folks like me, because when I, when my son got his diagnosis, um, 
um, everyone said, uh, talk to Dr. Mark Dent, uh, see what he's done, right? Like copy the playbook because that is exactly the situation that you're in. Um, and you, 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 you describe precisely the situation that I was in in 2018 or 2019 when my son got diagnosed, where no biotech was interested. Um, no one knew what the life expectancy was for my son. Um, no one knew if uh, he would grow up and and you know be happy, healthy, and you know have children, have have a family. We have no clue, uh, and we're still in a very similar situation. Things have changed, uh, but we're still in a very similar situation, and we're continuing to fight the good fight. So, thank you again for everything that you've done. It's just incredible to see uh, the light at the end of the tunnel. You're so very kind. I. I, I... I hear your story, Sanath, and, and, and when we met a few years back, uh, it was so moving to, to me because I, I see uh, my, myself uh, as a younger person in you, a young dad with, with no hope, but finding hope through your own efforts. And I think that that's the message that as an older person now, I can share with all of those who are laying on the floor next to their child's bed and, and, and not wanting to think about tomorrow is when I was laying there, I also believed when I finally stood up, that if I can't change the future, if our efforts cannot change the future for Ryan, if the treatment does not come in time for Ryan, Ryan's life will make a difference because what we do today absolutely will bring hope to those who are diagnosed tomorrow. We will, we will change the lives of those in the next generation. And, and that, was, uh, that was really our unspoken goal, my wife and I, as we, as we laid there thinking about what might be and what won't be, uh, hope comes from effort, action, and so what I truly believe now, looking back, is that over 30 years, uh, everything we did at the moment seemed so silly, inconsequential. And yet, when you pile them all together, uh, look what's happened now. So can you give us a short version of how you found the treatment, the enzyme replacement treatment for Ryan? Because it wasn't there when you started. Right. It, it was it was a, a long journey of, of uh, trying to connect dots, as I like to say. Uh, so uh, Sanath gave, gave me a promotion to eat said Dr. Mark Dant, but Frank, I'm not a doctor. I'm like most of us, I'm, uh, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a medical professional. I was a police officer for 32 years in Texas. Uh, I worked my, my entire career while running a nonprofit on the side, just like like most of the rare parent parents do. Ryan needed health insurance. His health insurance came from my employer. So um, it's, it's, it always, it's just a quick sidebar. It always makes me laugh when I hear someone not on a rare journey talk about how hard their work is, how difficult it is, how tired they are when they get home. And I want to smile on the outside and just say, well, try now as you get home, uh, giving your child dinner and then going back out on the road or back on the computer to, to work on the nonprofit until two in the morning at, at the earliest. It's a different life we lead. So uh, we looked to find science. We realized early on that, uh, now this is with the times before of the internet. So all of my reading came from the public library system in Dallas. I learned everything that the doctor had told me was true about NPS, that Ryan would be leaving within a decade. But I also thought that if perhaps science was our only answer. So we needed a scientist. We started a nonprofit after I found a book in the library about how to start a nonprofit and I read it. And it didn't say to start with a bake sale, but looking back on that, I think that's probably pretty stupid. We started with a bake sale that raised $342, but if you think about it, that $342 was action. 
and it taught us that we could do something. And we got better at it, looked worldwide. And my wife worked for American Airlines, so I was able to fly to Germany to a symposium there where a research scientist talked about a treatment he'd put together for Gaucher syndrome, another lysosomal storage disorder that worked because I saw a 12-year-old girl on the stage that looked phenomenal. I asked that researcher if it was possible for MPS1. He said it was possible, but you don't have two things you're going to need. One was enough time because Ryan was four at the time and we didn't have enough money because it would talk, cost a lot of money. But it empowered us even further. We got better at raising money and we found through a connection of many other dots, a researcher working in a World War II era Quonset hut behind the county hospital in Torrance, California by himself on something called enzyme replacement therapy for MPS1. He had no funds and that would be our job to help fill the gaps to keep that science moving forward. He hired other scientists with some of our funds. He built the enzyme. Uh, he built, made enough of it to have an FDA trial. Uh, and that's where MPS1's enzyme replacement therapy came from. So the great, great news about that also is we have to remember science learns uh, from other science. So since the uh, approval of MPS1's enzyme replacement therapy treatment, there's now treatment for Hunter syndrome, MPS2, MPS4, MPS6, MPS7, Pompeii, Fabre, and other LSDs, all based on the idea that enzyme replacement therapies can work for these children. They do work, and they, and they buy time for better science. So like we mentioned earlier, uh, Ryan is now 35, still receiving the weekly three and a half, four hour IV infusion, but still living, and he has his own dreams and his own hopes because of the partnership of science, parents, patient advocates, industry with the right mindset, and the FDA. You mentioned the Quonset hut behind the hospital. That's where I actually started my career, not that Quonset hut, but in this concrete building that we called the Pink Palace, but behind <laughs> Erie County Medical Center um, near Buffalo, New York, and doing research in in very slight and and primitive uh, conditions as the building was, um, even though we were doing great science. Um, so it just brought me back to that time period. And I guarantee you, Kevin, some of the wor work you did there, uh, things changed because of that. And I, I think some, when Ryan and my wife and I flew out to LA to meet this miracle scientist who we'd hoped would change Ryan's future, I envisioned this big glass building because that's where great science occurs. And when we got there with this little light blue wooden structure behind a county hospital, uh, and we walked in there, but something about that scientist, Dr. Emil Kakis, told us if there was a way to treat, he would find it. He would, we were told stories by his, by his staff that you have to watch Dr. Kakis when you leave in the evening at 6 p.m. because he'll still be there uh, because the next morning we'll get there and he'll have the same clothes on because he never left. Every obstacle, every barrier in his way, he found a way through it or around it or over it to treat these children. He was always focused on the opportunities that treatment would bring. And it has. Wow. That's such a commitment. And I know Dr. Kakis is continuing to advocate for um, everyone in the rare disease space. Uh, and has been a, a huge pioneer. I've read a lot of his papers and, and listened to his talks. It's such an inspiration for me. I, I want to go back to something that you you mentioned because um, four years after my son's diagnosis, I'm starting to see a different picture of it. Um, 
when there is no hope, we turn towards science because science could offer us a hope, right? And that is exactly what I did after my son's diagnosis. Um, that's the message that I had heard from a lot of others. And as I'm talking to folks in the rare disease space, it's just apparent that that's the message that everyone has received. But the the community at large, like the medical community at large, and just, just the society at large, doesn't treat it that way, right? I know a lot of other parents whose first resort um, is not science. Um, and in fact, it would be their last resort, right? And it's totally fine. But I think there might be, we might all benefit from getting these folks to maybe think 10% more about science than they would otherwise. So because you've had this long journey and you've probably seen a huge transformation in the society already, I'm curious to hear from 88 to today, how has general public's perception and understanding of science changed over time? And do you think it has improved and do you see that you know, improving over time? Absolutely, and that's a great question. Early, early on, uh, our journey was uh, our only—the only opportunity we had to reach out to someone was uh, through a national organization, and they were a fine quality organization. But they were totally focused on um, helping the patient journey towards the end. It was as if it was accepted that this is this was what was going to happen. And it was in, in my mind and heart that uh, everything that's written down was written yesterday. We don't get to tomorrow without the work. We cannot, we cannot stop in, with yesterday's information. Science brings us tomorrow's information. So I, I think over time when treatment started coming forward in rare diseases, not even in our own disease, it gave us hope that it comes from somewhere. Well, we think it comes from companies. In reality, it comes from that bench scientist who, had, who can push forward the science and realize their work on this specific day is not to see if the mouse model does the X or Y. It's to treat. And so my message to all scientists is, your daily duty is to focus on treatment. The company who comes in later on will bring that treatment forward, but you have to get them to focus specifically on treatment. But it all begins with, will the parent, will the patient advocate believe that hope comes from science? Our tagline for the Ryan Foundation since the beginning is has been funding science, finding hope. Uh, we have believed that since the beginning and we still have it. I love to hear that because we are in a similar space with Everly's journey where there isn't much science at this point and not as much effort. I'm sure there's a lot of effort, but we don't have enough facts or actual science behind um, some of the research. And so I think as a parent, sometimes you get stuck as well, just not knowing where to start. And so kind of hearing your journey over time, it makes me feel really optimistic that these little steps that we're doing every day are actually really big steps. And like you said, they're action. And we might not see the outcome of it for quite some time. So thank you for sharing that piece of your journey. I did want to go back to when you first had that experience of the first enzyme therapy with Ryan. What was that like for you and for him? For my wife and I, it was, uh, for me, it was 
almost impossible to not cry because uh, I'm, I'm not a big crier, but it was the, the emotion of the moment of realizing that perhaps that this drip by drip of the of the uh, IV will truly change Ryan's tomorrows. Uh, it was true. It was an opportunity. And knowing, looking back to the bake sale and, and picturing us laying on the floor next to our, our sleeping child in the bed and realizing there was no tomorrow and slowly being able to think, well, well, maybe he will graduate junior high school. Maybe he will go to high school. Maybe he will go to college. Maybe he will date. Maybe, maybe even the greatest moment of, of grandchildren can happen. You know, in our futures, we think of that often, but in rare disease, we don't want to think about that. Treatment brings the opportunity to to think of those things that we had put away were too painful to think of. So at the moment of treatment, Dr. Kakis, because he is one of a kind, he said, okay, we're gonna start the IV. And all three of us, my wife, Jean and I, and Dr. Kakis pressed the button that would forever change Ryan's tomorrow. And realistically now change the tomorrows of, of children we're being able to meet from around the world whose parents were told, now your child has this disease called MPS1, Hurler-Shea or, or Shea or Hurler, uh, but there is a treatment. And from that moment forward, their mindset is different than ours was. The true reality of hope is effort. Mark, I, I just pictured myself sitting in the doctor's office, someone telling me that my son has MPS1, but there's a treatment, right? And I've, I've, we've, we've sat in the other side where they said, your son has a disease, but there's no treatment. And just like thinking about the difference that would make and how much my future dreams would not be shattered, right? How much this is just a bump in the road than, um, you know, a, a, a 200 foot drop into a canyon, right? It's just phenomenal like I cannot I, I guess like the new parents cannot feel that difference but but we can as as people that have gone yes. through that journey so it's just so inspiring to hear that it, it was a, a moment that I, I will never ever ever forget so I've had one of those actually no now two seven of those moments um uh and and it's it's interesting. So we've we've repurposed seven different drugs for my son. Um, and we know when we when we gave him the first four supplements, those were just supplements. We didn't quite expect anything much out of it. Um, and then we tried an experimental drug. Um, and I, I I specifically remember the moment when we administered the drug to him with all of the hope. But at the same time, we weren't sure what to expect, uh, right? Like the other part of us was, well, it's experimental. You know, we have to wait and see if it really works. Um, although all the science says this is good drug. A year later, it did nothing. Um, the Then the next drug came along. Uh, a year later, my son had more hearing than he had before. It restored some of his hearing abilities. So it gave us a lot of joy that he could hear. And even even like last night, um, when I was making him sleep, uh, he heard some noise and woke himself up. And, you know, as a parent, we would be annoyed if your kid doesn't go to sleep. But I was just really happy that he's still hearing and like waking himself up from sleep. So, you know, I'm thankful for, for, for that. But it's just so hard to, you know, believe that these drugs would, would change your life until and after you have them. Yes. What a great story. And what a wonderful moment to, to understand now that your son truly is hearing better because of, of, of 
an opportunity provided by an off-label. I didn't realize you were up to seven repurposes. That's that's you've done quite a bit, Sana. That's 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 quite a bit. Yeah, the we we, we stopped, but uh, because he he developed other complications, and we didn't want to throw more into him. Um, but uh, it it was quite a journey. I wanted to just jump back to something we we touched on at the beginning about. Um, him recently getting married. And I think you said also purchasing a home. That's another step forward in in his life. And for you guys as well, being a part of that journey at his wedding, what was that situation like? And, and how much pride and joy did you have that day as his dad? Oh, goodness. It's hard to put in, into words, Brittany. As, as parents, we all, uh, in the quiet solitudes of the night, think about those moments in our future of what we will see our children do and accomplish and, and the struggles they will have, and they will all be wonderful in our minds. Uh, but we also know that uh, when we're told what will happen tomorrow, that our child won't be with us, we cannot think about those moments anymore. So for a couple of decades, uh, well, well, at least for the full, first full decade, would uh, not allow my th myself to think anything about tomorrow because it's too painful. We know this to be a fact, it's too painful. So in the moment that uh, Ryan uh, and, and Sylvia, his uh, fifth grade uh, bilingual uh, teacher, um, walked down the aisle to their future, I just could not believe it. It was, it was something that we had put away so long ago, which forced ourselves not to think of. And then to actually see him happy and smiling and walking with with his his wife down, down the aisle was was it's just beyond beyond words. The another interesting point of that is Dr. Kakis, uh, as as Sanath has said, has spoken with him, uh, is such a kind person. When Ryan graduated high school, Dr. Kakis knew that, that moment was was very special to all of us because it wasn't going to happen. So he flew from San Francisco to Dallas to watch. When Ryan graduated college from the University of Louisville, after struggling for a long time because cognitive decline issues and new science coming along that was funded again by nonprofit, uh, our nonprofit, um, Dr. Kakis flew from wherever he was to Louisville to watch him graduate. And there on, on the sixth row on the groom's side was Dr. Kakis. He too watched Ryan and Sylvia walk to their future. Uh, these, these are moments that weren't going to be had it not been for the opportunities that uh, he made happen through his partnerships and that we helped with through our partnerships of friendship. All of our friends in Dallas made all of this happen because they too believed that don't give up on tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen unless you try. And they put so many hours into tomorrow and they watched Ryan walk down to his future. Wow. I can almost not speak. <laughs> I'm I'm tearing up just thinking about that myself. Um, I've shared on on episodes prior that Everly's Mayo team um, came to her first birthday and drove, you know, many hours to be there. And to hear that, you know, likely those people will continue to show up is pretty great. I remember the first question that Sonneth asked me, 
after he got a hold of me was, why would a company want to pay attention to my kid? And my answer was something like, don't talk to the company. Talk to the scientists who are going to be interested and passionate about this. That, what Emil Kakis did, is a perfect example. What the Mayo team did is a perfect example. That's not in their job description. Show up at people's weddings and graduations and birthdays. Um, no. Emil told me, Dr. Kakis told me, way back in the mid-90s when we would have a fundraiser and we would fly out to, to visit and to bring a check, small or, or large, and he would show me the differences of what, what has happened since the last time. Uh, he, he told me in a conversation that I think we were talking about pricing. If this ever goes to market, it's going to be incredibly expensive because um, the, the Gaucher drug was was beyond expensive. And he, he told me one thing that he still lives by today, and he's now the CEO of a company he started called Ultragenics, and ultra, uh, works in ultra-rare rare space, and has, uh, I think, a 10 or 11 treatments already approved. He told me that if you focus on the treatment, the money will come. Uh, but if you focus the other way around, the, the failure will happen. He's kept that in, in his mind the entire time. And that, that's why uh, both companies, Biomarin, that started because of Ryan's drug and Dr. Kakis, uh, is successful. And Ultragenics is successful because you focus on treatment uh, and the rest will, will make itself work out. That's a great point, Kevin. So <clears throat> you've been through this as kind of the patient parent wave of activism happened, you know, from the the mid to late 80s through now and you you made progress your son's doing well now um and he has a treatment but and we met at global genes last year after you spoke on a panel about how do we make this easier so what do you think needs to get better to make it easier to develop treatments for rare and ultra rare disease uh the, the science needs to, needs to continue forward and it will because of the scientists you, you both, you all three have spoken about, who care about treatment. But our system needs to improve. Uh, our, our system with the FDA, who are our partners, but in, in reality, the FDA is, is stuck in their, in their rut of their own system. Uh, the, the word, the, the term biomarkers is, is often batted about, but in reality, uh, in the ultra rare space, unless we have a biomarker uh, that can say downstream what will, uh, uh, predict basically what will happen, um, the rare money is going away. And, and that's what's concerning me immensely, is it, it companies, startup companies, who believe in the treatment, who believe in the opportunity it can bring, uh, can't, can't put $120 million into a treatment for uh, 200 patients world, world, worldwide. Uh, if it takes 10 years or, or almost 10 years to get it through our system, uh, understanding that in, in accelerated approval process, there is an opportunity to keep those funds in the rare space if the FDA will change their opinions and actually apply the law to ultra rare uh, specifically. It takes too long for drugs to be approved. Uh, and so companies are, uh, can't invest that kind of capital and stay in, in the business. So the good science is shelved and treatment goes away. We have to include, in, we have to increase the speed of treatment. Uh, the FDA says uh, they have a two-prong approach, safety and efficacy. 
I would add a third, which is urgency. If we are not urgent about treatment, when the science is sound, these children will leave. And uh, we've, we've not given them the opportunity for their tomorrows like Ryan. We have to improve the FDA process. Yeah, 100%. I can give you an example where, forget about the, the, the savvy biotech investor, me as a parent decided not to invest in my son's gene therapy because there were too few patients. Uh, and the the time it would take for me to invest in building his gene therapy and the money I would have to raise was enormous. And I could do it, but the opportunity cost did not balance out the benefit that he might get, especially when the drug hits um, his veins when he's 10 years old, right? He might have gone too far into the disease. We never know. And so without the number of patients, it just didn't make any sense. If there were, say, 300 patients, I could say, well, my son might not get it or might get it, but there are 299 other patients that would benefit from it and then the kids that are born in the future. So I think the, the, there's something to say about the power in numbers and there's also something to say about the pathway being available for easier, faster access or approvals to treatments. Um, and if the FDA was a little bit more open to those opportunities, and if it was possible for us to get more funding to some of these treatments sooner rather than later, things would dramatically change. Absolutely. The, the definition of accelerated approval basically is uh, the reasonably uh, predict clinical uh, improvement. Uh, it does not say without without a doubt, uh, beyond a shadow or a doubt, of a doubt, or any type of, le of other criminal legal way of doing it. It's reasonably predict, and and yet uh, we're not allowing that in rare, in ultra rare disease. And so good science is being shelved. We have to work to train change that. And actually, the voice of every rare patient can do that. If if you uh, connect with your legislator, your senator, your state senator, your your congressperson, and let them know. Science is available to treat, and yet our system is, is holding it back. Help the FDA get out of their own way, basically. Maybe I should start doing that. I, I just personally am very afraid of, uh, of, of going into advocacy, like especially the, the, the policy side of advocacy. <laughs> um, but but the, more, the more I see it, the more I feel like there's really the opportunity for us to make a difference. I think, okay, let me, a little backstory. So we, we all, my, my job had nothing to do with policy, nothing to do with science or medicine. I was a police officer. And that what I've found, uh, it is the voice of the individual who truly can change Washington, D.C. Uh, I had an idea once when Ryan, uh, before uh, the Affordable Care Act, uh, Ryan's uh, lifetime cap of $2 million was met very quickly as his annual drug cost is well over $500,000. A year. So, um, as he moved into Medicaid, he had a job at eight dollars and thirty-five cents an hour. Uh, he, he would very easily earn too much working part-time as an equipment person for a, a college in, in Dallas. So he would lose his Medicaid. So we had an idea that I wrote down on a five-by-seven uh, index card in in my congressman's office in D.C. on the Hill that perhaps we could waive uh, income restrictions for ultra-orphan drugs uh, over X amount uh, annual cost. He thought it was a good idea. So I would, every year, every month, I would take my vacation time and go to DC with a couple other moms or dads and push that idea forward. We actually got a bill. 
We had a co- uh, co-sponsored. We got it through the house. It was actually uh, approved and put in the Affordable Care Act of the of the House version, not the Senate version. So that it didn't make it into the final version. But my point is, it's the voice of uh, your own voice actually about your child's future about rare disease can change the future for for all rare disease we have to rely on it and and just find the strength to go meet them and tell them this is happening we need your help Brittany, you're you're now a public official right he can practice with you (laughs) yeah well i just (laughs) exactly and i just keep thinking about the power in numbers so um as we continue to not only meet more set D5 parents, it's it's people like you, Mark, and Sonneth, and Kevin, that where we have each other. And I think that's one of the greatest gifts that not only our podcast brings together, but just the community in general, um, because I really don't think we could do this without each other. So as a whole, I just want to say thank you again, Mark, for being here today. One of the things that I took away Uh, among many things, was something you said, the true reality of hope is effort. And I wrote that down here on my desk, and I I will look at that multiple times a day because I do really think it is an amazing quote to live by. But if there is one thing that you want listeners to take away from today's discussion, what would that be? The one thing I think all of us need to remember is we have no idea what our action today will do for tomorrow. If I keep looking back at that silly bank sale and I can picture myself standing there and it started to rain and we moved, it was in front of a bank uh, on, on a busy street. We moved all the cakes and cupcakes inside the bank because they were getting rained on. And at that moment, I thought, this is the stupidest thing I've ever done. We're, we're raising dollars to find a treatment for Ryan who wasn't there because we didn't want him to know he was sick yet. But now looking back, I realized that bake sale was everything to us because it gave us the strength to keep pushing forward. We were told no more than you could ever imagine, asking for money, asking for help in D.C. We're still being told no. We're asking for scientists to do this. We're still being told no. But every now and then you'll find a yes. And those yeses will connect and you will make a difference. If not for this generation, the next generation can say, when did this all start? And they'll find you, your effort. Believe in your efforts today that it can change tomorrow and you will. I really believe that. Thank you so much, Mark, for sharing your wisdom, your perspective, and your, your outlook on all this. It's a, it's a learned outlook. You're at the other end of the tunnel. But what you've been through can really help other people as they make their way through. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been one. It's been a wonderful conversation for, with all of you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation on raising rare. Please subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast platform. We would love to get your feedback through ratings and reviews. And this week, tell someone that you think would be helped by our conversations on raising rare that they should be tuning in too.